0: Welcome to Touching Base, the new weekly podcast series from Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News, or GEN. I'm Kevin Davis, GEN's Editorial Director, and delighted to help launch this series uh, with with the aid of uh, a fabulous foursome of GEN's editorial team. Joining me today are Juliana Lemieux, GEN's Deputy Editor. Hi, Juliana.
1: Hi, Kevin. Nice to see you.
0: Good to see you, Alex Filipinas, Jen's senior business editor in New York. G- Alex, hi. Howdy, Kevin. Uh, Jonathan Grinstein, who's our roving West Coast uh, reporter. Jonathan, good to see you.
2: Present. Good to see you.
0: <laughs> and last but not least, Uduak Thomas, our latest recruit to the Jen editorial team. Uduak, hi.
3: Hey, Kevin. Nice to be here. As
0: most of you probably know, Jen's a magazine and publication that's been covering the world of biotech for more than four decades and in touching base this new podcast series we're going to be discussing the stories and events of the week in biotech and bring along some special guests to dig deeper into some key stories and we have a great guest who we will introduce in a few moments. For this opening episode. We hope that these podcasts will give you a feel for what's exciting the scientists and moving the markets every week. Later in the program, we'll bring you Juliana's exclusive interview with Nevin Krogan from the University of California, San Francisco, who will be discussing advances, spectacular advances in autism research and much more besides. It's a great conversation and you'll want to stick around for that. In the news this week, of course, uh, we have some big expectations on the sickle cell front. As we anticipate the FDA following uh, suit of its uh, UK and uh, uh, regulatory authorities in approving Casgevy from Vertex Pharmaceuticals, we'll touch on that a little bit later on. But first, I want to see uh, what's been capturing the attention of our team, Uh, Juliana. Let me start with you. I mentioned uh, we've got your big interview with. Nevin Krogan uh, coming up later in the program. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the genesis uh, and the rationale of of uh, sitting down with Nevin?
1: Yeah, sure, Kevin. Thanks. So, I mean, it's always a pleasure to talk to Nevin. You know, just at maybe about three years ago, he had a did a lot of work in COVID and then moved into cancer, and so now autism. He has a paper on autism. So, as I joked with him, you know, he likes to take on really small, small, complex, you know, not complex problems. Um, I should mention this, what we talked about is a preprint that was released on Monday of this week. And, you know, Nevin's thing is really moving away from the genetics and into the proteins and not just analyzing what proteins are important, but the protein-protein interactions. And so Nevin really believes and, you know, and drives the idea that that is where the new drug targets will come from in the future for autism, for cancer, and for many, many other diseases as well. So as he will explain, it's it would be much, much better to hear him describe it than myself, but as he will explain, you know this really was a proof of concept paper where you could go from starting from all the research done in genetics on autism, which there is extensive research in genetics on autism, to looking at the protein-protein interactions and then doing a lot of work to verify those, and then actually finding drug targets. Um, so we'll hear more from him about all of that work coming up later on the program.
0: That sounds that sounds great. Looking forward to it. Alex, um, you've been working hard this week, uh, looking in particular at a, a big uh, partnership in the AI front. Tell us about that.
4: Sure. Uh, It involves NVIDIA, which is the Silicon Valley based uh, microprocessing giant, and uh, Genentech, the uh, South San Francisco uh, founded uh, now subsidiary of Roche. And the two companies uh, announced that they've launched a collaboration to use their AI technologies together to, they say, develop drugs faster and cheaper. Now, the companies won't say what therapeutic areas they're working in, and they won't disclose the value of the partnership. But uh, John Marioni, who heads computational sciences at Genentech uh, Research and Early Development, or GRED, uh, says that uh, the partnership will help accelerate Genentech's lab in a loop through which it feeds extensive amounts of data into computational models which are supposed to uncover patterns and formulate which are new predictions which are supposed to improve the development of therapies now this comes as NVIDIA's uh, two of its rivals are gearing up this month to come out with new processors that they hope will take market share away from uh, NVIDIA which really has been growing in by tech and healthcare related AI. Uh, For example, AMD, uh, as of our recording date, uh, Wednesday was expected to come out with uh, a new family of data center GPU accelerators, while next week, Intel uh, was expected to come out with a fifth generation Intel Xeon processors for uh, data centers. But last month, NVIDIA came out with some tech of its own, the H200 uh, Computing uh, platform. Uh, so um, you're seeing now the processor uh, the chip companies uh, trying to muscle in a little bit uh, on NVIDIA, but NVIDIA has found what's turned into a, a growing niche uh, in drug discovery and development. Uh, they have collaborations, for example, with GlaxoSmithKline and, and, and other companies.
0: Yeah, I'm sure they'll be uh, very much on Jen's radar uh, looking ahead into the new year. What else caught your attention this week? I think CAR T has been among the uh, other areas of interest.
4: Sure, Kevin. For StockWatch, I looked at what effect the FDA's investigation into CAR T therapies—those are chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapies—for uh, Long had on uh, the stock prices of companies that are developing uh, these treatments. Now, mm-hmm. the FDA is reviewing uh, whether it needs new regs to address uh, what it called, on the one hand, the serious risks that patients treated with CAR T uh, therapies. Uh, could which are meant to fight cancer now could instead be developing new T-cell malignancies. However, at the same time, the FDA says the overall benefits of these products continue to outweigh their potential risks for their approved uses. So they've got a foot on, on both sides of the fence, so to speak. Now, five companies make uh, approved CAR T therapies: Bristol-Myers Squibb, Gilead, Johnson and Johnson, plus Legend Biotech, their partners, and Novartis. Now, what's interesting to me is that the stocks of the largest biopharmas in the CAR T field. were pretty flat for example, a, a 1% drop for Novartis that first day of the announcement, fractions of a percent for the other. These are the larger biopharmers of the approved. Yeah. The issue was with smaller biotechs that had CAR-Ts in their pipelines, and they did worse. For example, autoluce Therapeutics, their, shells, their shares fell 5%, but that was a day in which the stock had nosedived 35% uh, when the headlines uh, from the FDA had uh, come out. Now, the shares had yo-yoed the rest of the week, uh, last week, and uh, this week were pretty flat. So the, the talk among analysts is that the FDA review will slow down CAR-T development beyond cancer, uh, and they noted that two analysts at Baird talked about autoimmune uh, drugs specifically. Uh, however, they and other analysts uh, agreed that it will not kill the CAR-Ts. Likely, some more cautions will be added to the labels of CAR-T therapies. Well, we will have
0: uh, Peter Marks uh, from the FDA uh, as one of our keynote speakers in our upcoming State of Cell and Gene Therapy Virtual Summit in January 2024. So uh, uh, that that will certainly be among the topics of of conversation. Jonathan Jonathan Grinstein, who uh, sounds like he's next door, but he's three thousand miles away from me, at least in uh, San Diego. Hi, Jonathan. You, I know, have spent a fair bit of time talking about tune or writing about tune. Therapeutics, one of the early uh, leaders in this nascent but incredibly exciting field of epigenome editing. What what new did they? Have, what new song did they have to play this week?
2: Yeah, thanks, Kevin. So, I mean, as you mentioned, this is kind of coming off the heels of a conversation I had with Tune Therapeutics founder, uh, Fyodor Urnoff, about a couple of months ago, which we filmed on an episode of Close to the Edge, and it was just, I mean, it was just a stunning conversation primarily on his hand just and, and <laughs> just laying out you know the the history of ch- uh, gene editing and the goals that he envisions. but yeah definitely recommend tuning into that but today's um, news or the news that I reported on this week had to do with new clinical preclinical data from Tune Therapeutics. Um, it's the first time they've revealed data. And it was not what I expected. So Toon Therapeutics is an epigenetic editing company. And, you know, the first thing that came to mind for me are just inherited genetic diseases that are, are regulated by epigenetics. And what did they go for? They went for hepatitis B, which I had no idea has a uh, is com- completely driven both the replication and the... Uh, the latency and the antigen burden is regulated by epigenetics. So I got to speak with principal scientist Brian Cosgrove, and he was telling me about yet yeah, how there's this fascinating Franken structure, he calls it, of integrated viral uh, DNA uh, into the host genome, and then this weird covalently closed circular DNA that forms a mini chromosome in the nucleus of hepatocytes, and these two structures drive as I said, the antigen burden and viral replication. And so as it turns out, um, the mechanisms that drive antigen burden and the viral replic- replication of hepatitis B are regulated by epigenetics, specifically methylation or the lack thereof. So they turn to their Tempo platform, which in uh, they use different kinds of epigenetic editors. In this case, they plugged in uh, a methyl transferase um, to hit Tar- these two different target sites with a single guide, mind you, after a bunch of screening to, to silence both of the mini chromosome and the integrated viral site. And they broke their research can be broken down into like three sections. So Brian told me a bit about their work in primary human hepatocytes from patients. And they were able to see remarkable repression of 90 to 95% for both of these uh, hepatitis B targets. But the, one of the things that I found most interesting and is that the, the silencing was incredibly durable, which has been a major question for um, epigenetic editing. You know, can these transient infections that make modifications uh, be sustained throughout, you know, the lifetime of a patient or whatnot? And remarkably, they saw, they have cells that are still going. I was joking with Brian about how, like, this must be like some max security prison protecting these cells, but they have cells that have been going for 550 days that have gone undergone 280 plus cell doublings that are still showing the same repressive marks. So the, the, these mechanism of epigenetic silencing is, is, is being retained by the cells through many, many cell cycles. So that's just really huge to see. Okay. Um, and finally, they looked at off-target effects and changes in background methylation, but, you know, nothing really noticeable there. They moved in and tried to do some in vivo data. So it's a little tricky here for hep B because hep B only infects humans and chimpanzees and the latter of which are no longer used for research. So they adopted this um, humanized liver model in mice where you ablate the uh, endogenous mouse hepatocytes, replace them with transplanted human hepatocytes and then infect the mice with the hepatitis B virus to infect the, the human um, hepatocytes and they were able to see repression of hepatitis B, both these sites, uh, through to the end of the lifespan of the animals. So again, the durability and the repressive effect seems very, very strong. I didn't hear too much about like the phenotype or the characteristics of, of the mice, how they were doing health-wise, but I mean, from the sound of it, the survival was was very good. Mm. And lastly, um, they, they did do some work in non-human primates. I mean, this is just such an important step right now for people to hit, I think, the FDA is asking for at least six months of non-human primate data when it comes to gene uh, editing techniques. And um, so what they did here is since they couldn't do the HBV model, uh, hepatitis B model, they, they targeted PCSK9, which uh, other people have been going after as well. And they kept everything the same, the same silencing mechanism. The only thing that was changed was the GE, the guide RNA. And they basically saw similar things as they saw uh, before in terms of depth of repression, durability, and specificity. So, you know, they're very, very excited over there. At at Tune Therapeutics, they said that they're looking to start clinical trials in late 2024. And, um, yeah, it was just a fascinating conversation. Really excited to see what else they have up their sleeve because, like I said, this was not what I expected from them at all.
0: Yeah, Tune uh, co-founded by Fyodor Urnov, who you mentioned, and uh, Charlie Gersbach, uh, leading CRISPR gene editing researcher at Duke University. And uh, Jonathan, your your excellent interview, <laughs> partly due to the nature of the questions, but largely due to the nature of the responses from Fyodor Urnov, um, is available on the GEN website. Uh, if you uh, check out the video section, it's the series is called Close to the Edge. Uduak, uh, big news in the mRNA therapeutics world, I guess. Which is which is probably you can probably say that most weeks. But what what caught your eye this week?
3: Absolutely, Kevin. Uh, yes, I think at this point, it goes without saying that mRNA therapeutics are on a lot of people's minds, largely due to the success of the COVID-19 vaccines. So this week, there's an interesting paper that came out in Nature that I would really want to encourage people to check out. This is a study that was done by scientists at the in the toxicology unit of the Medical Research Council at the University of Cambridge, and they collaborated with scientists at University of Kent, Oxford, and Liverpool. So, let me go over a little bit of the basis for the study as it's described in the paper. And it basically stems from the fact that there are instances when people receive an mRNA therapeutic, sometimes uh, off target proteins can be produced alongside the target protein. So, I think my understanding of the paper is the researchers had this hypothesis that one of the potential causes of this uh, off target protein production is the addition of modified ribonucleotides to mRNA therapeutics. Now this is something that's commonly done. And uh, one of the common modified ribonucleotides that's added to these therapeutics is something called N1 methyl pseudouridine. And this is a methylated derivative of pseudouridine which is uh, a pretty abundant uh, RNA modification in uh, cellular RNA. Um, And as it happens, this is used uh, quite a bit in the production of RNA vaccines. So these are added typically to try to reduce the risk of uh, immunogenicity. So when this is added, the researchers looked at what happens when the ribosome confronts these modified bases in the mRNA. And what they found is that on occasion, the ribosome slips about 10% of the time, and this causes the mRNA to be misread. And so as a result of this ribosomal frame shift, in some cases, the unwanted proteins are produced alongside the target protein. And again, in some cases, there is a potential, obviously, we wouldn't know until we actually see this happen, but there is a potential that there could be an unwanted immune response. Um, So as part of this study, the researchers actually did look at one of the mRNA-based COVID-19 vaccines. They looked for evidence of these unintended uh, proteins produced in some patients. And they did find that there were cases, not in all cases, in some, where some off-target proteins were produced when patients received the vaccine. I wanna be very clear. There were no adverse effects from these proteins that were produced. Um, So there's no cause for concern that the vaccines are in any way unsafe. That question has been answered. There's ample evidence that the vaccines are safe and efficacious. There was no evidence of off-target effects, but they did see evidence that the proteins, these off-target proteins were produced alongside um, the, the target protein. So it's quite interesting. The researchers do offer a solution Basically, they designed what they call slip-resistant mRNAs that remove the N1-methyl-pseudouridine modified base, basically, from the mRNA. And this does seem to effectively reduce the problem of off-target protein production uh, due to this ribosomal slip. So it's pretty interesting. I mean, I think this is probably still early days. Obviously, some very important implications for future designs of mRNA therapeutics and vaccines. Obviously we want these to be very safe and effective and limit the risk of off-target effects. So I think I'll be interested to follow up on this study and hopefully other studies that look into this question. Meantime, there's a lot of great detail in the Nature paper. I would encourage everyone to check it out. It is out this week.
0: Thanks, Uluwak, that was great. So a few quick second rounds, just going around the, the, uh, the horn here. Juliana, you've just come back from Boston. You've been uh, up at uh, the American Society of Cell Biology meeting. What uh, what stood out there?
1: Yep. My last trip to Boston for the year, Kevin, which is good because after 14 years living in Boston, I know how quickly it's going to get cold and snowy up there. (laughs) So I was happy to get out before before it got too cold. Um, Yeah, I was really happy to be at ASCB this year. Um, Number one, ran into a bunch of great old friends, including somebody's lab. I rotated in at Tufts during my PhD, where it was the only place I've ever dissected tetrads in my life in a yeast lab. So that was pretty fun. But so, yeah, I mean, I, I walked around, I was really struck actually walking around the expo floor by like, what's going on in microscopy right now is like amazing. I mean, there's so many different types of microscopy going on and also so many different, like trinkets and additions you can put onto your existing microscope that allow you to just, it's just opening up these worlds into, into microscopes. In fact, not even like microscopy, but they're really down to the nanoscale. I mean, this one company ION has developed a D storm microscope and you know, they're down to 20 nanometers. You can see protein protein, speaking of protein, protein interactions going on to Nevin, you can yeah. see them in the scope. So, um, I was really struck by how advanced a lot it's been years since I've been to this meeting and how advanced microscopy is and, and, um, and what it's allowing people to do. So I would say definitely a gen in our coverage. I mean, I can't wait to dive into some of these micros, you know, more like microscopy based stories and, and cover more of that research.
0: Yeah. Well, I know you'll be, uh, hitting the road uh, early in the new year for warmer climbs so we'll talk about those uh, <laughs> those shows in future episodes no doubt of of touching base uh, alex uh, as uh, breaking news uh, from bio what's going on uh, at the, at the uh, trade association
4: well uh, they uh, bio announced uh, just yesterday that uh... John Crowley, the longtime head of Amicus Therapeutics, uh, will become CEO uh, next spring. And that would uh, actually March 4th, uh, to be exact, just before spring. And uh, he would succeed Rachel King, who we've interviewed on Close to the Edge uh, last year as CEO. And uh, for Bio, this comes at a time when uh, the group and the broader biopharma industry is trying to challenge the government uh, on two fronts, one being the Inflation Reduction Act with the uh, Medicare negotiations for prices of selected drugs. This is something industry is chafed at, uh, depending on the company, either very loudly or, you know, more muted uh, criticism. Uh, the other issue is the FTC's uh, wary eye on uh, mergers and acquisitions involving a larger companies. You've seen what's happened with Illumina and Grail over recent years. Uh, the FTC threatened to torpedo Amgen and Horizon Therapeutics uh, earlier this year, but then retreated and let that deal go through. So those are two issues. At the same time, uh, Crowley has uh, been an advocate for rare disease research and, and the broader industry. Uh, this comes as Rachel has, uh, to my mind, uh, spent time rebuilding bio and getting it back to away from the turmoil of Rachel's predecessor, Michelle McMurray Heath. Uh, so Crowley will need to further. Uh, stabilize Bio and actually grow it. Now, Bio's chairman is Ted Love. Global Blood Therapeutics it got bought by Pfizer, and also an advocate for uh, rare for disease yeah. research. Pretty, pretty powerful
0: tandem there, uh, Love and and Crowley. Uh, you you had not long ago interviewed Rachel King for our Gen Edge video series, Close to the Edge. Did she give any hints that she was getting ready to to leave?
4: Rachel didn't give me any timing hints, but she did say that this is pretty late in her career and that uh, she wasn't going to stay there forever. So right. in that sense, uh, one needed to expect at least that she was going to get going sooner rather than later. Although this is a little sooner than I, I thought it would be.
0: Yeah. OK, good. John Crowley, of course, is, uh, as you say, a, a, an ardent uh, rare disease uh uh, advocate. Uh, he's uh, his family includes children with Pompeii disease, yeah, and children. that story was portrayed about a dozen years ago in the film *Extraordinary Measures*. John was played by Brendan Fraser, who probably towers over him by at least a foot, but <laughs> otherwise it was good casting. um And uh, Harrison Ford played the sort of uh, the. Uh, the uh, hard-charging uh, uh, scientist uh, uh, leading leading the search for for a cure. So uh, I'm sure I'm sure that's streaming somewhere. Great. Well, uh, that's almost all for our conversation. Uh, of course, the big news as this podcast comes out at the end of this week is likely to be the FDA approval of Casgevy. Uh, that's certainly what the, the 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 odds are looking like. The British uh, uh, approved this. Uh, the first CRISPR gene therapy uh, a couple of weeks ago in in November. So it seems very likely that the FDA will follow suit. There was an FDA advisory committee meeting about a month ago, which was not the panel was not charged with discussing or, or voting on whether the therapy should be approved, rather whether whether the sponsors Vertex Pharmaceuticals had thoroughly vetted the, uh, the, the uh, and satisfactorily mitigated any concerns around off-target effects which is always of course a theoretical concern when it when it comes to uh, crispr therapies the the genetic scissors of course and uh, as daniel bauer uh, a leading uh, hematologist at boston children's hospital presented to that committee meeting there is the the suggestion of an off-target site uh, on the same chromosome as this therapy is is working on uh, human chromosome number two but uh, it still includes uh, uh, several mismatches and so far there's absolutely no evidence to suggest this is a uh, either a molecular or a biological uh, concern but it'll be interesting to see whether the FDA uh, does attach any conditions uh, after when this uh, therapy is as expected uh, approved. Of course uh, that assuming it is approved then we're going to have the interesting question of how much is it going to cost and i think uh alex you and everyone has heard probably prices of about two million dollars for this one and done therapy uh which is not to be sneezed at um we'll have to see no. what the reimbursement looks like but obviously vertex has been working hard on that front one presumes and has experience in getting uh reimbursement for other rare disease uh, drugs, of course, notably cystic fibrosis, which it's been absolutely uh, pioneering in, in uh, over the last uh, decade. So we will see. A good segue to, uh, to talking about the first big virtual event of next year is uh, that Jonathan's going to preview for us in a second is that um, the lead patient, the lead American patient uh, in the Vertex trial, uh, Victoria Gray, uh, is a name that I think is becoming increasingly well known. She's been widely interviewed, uh, regularly interviewed uh, on National Public Radio over the past few years. And uh, I'm absolutely ecstatic to say that Victoria will be joining us on the State of Cell and Gene Therapy, uh, Jen's first virtual event uh, on in January of uh, 2024. Uh, Jonathan, you've really put this program together. What else can you share regarding the highlights of that uh, agenda?
2: Yeah, so really excited to bring um, the State of Cell and Gene Therapy, our latest uh, of these summits, early 2024. We've got a full lineup that starts off with a keynote from Peter Marks from the FDA, you know, just really laying down the regulatory landscape. I think that, you know, we've seen some amazing ideas and developments of drugs, but, it, but it's excitingly getting to the point where it, we want to see these become real medicines. So, what does the FDA have to say about it? And um, as you mentioned, Victoria Gray, such an amazing story. We have a couple sessions um, on the state of gene editing with, uh, and the state of cell therapy. Names like Karen Musunuru and Adrian Wolfson. I mean, two just major figures in these fields. Um, Karen Mus- Musunuru from UPenn, and with uh, also associated with BERV and Adrian Wolfson with this killer new company called replay bio, well, we have a panel that I'm really excited about. Maybe it doesn't draw, you know, the same kind of like headlines as some other stuff, but, uh, cell engine therapy, manufacturing and automation, um, you know, it's a mouthful, but that stuff is just so important going forward. If we want to see reproducible, consistent cell gene therapies being manufactured. Um, and there's been a lot of money being thrown that way and we have an excellent panel of F- Fabian Gerlinghaus from Solaris, Alexis Robner from 64x Bio and Nabija Saklayan from Celino. And yeah, that's just going to be a, a lot of fun. And finally we have a uh, Jim Wilson as our, our second keynote and we have some bonus content as well that Juliana will be um, throwing in there. So uh, really looking forward to this event uh, it'll be free and uh tune into our website for some more information soon yeah
0: free registration uh january 24th beginning at 11 a.m eastern time okay uh great conversation everybody thanks uh for that that brings to a close part one of uh, episode one of touching base uh, and coming up in a moment in part two Juliana's exclusive interview with Nevin
5: Krogan. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode of Touching Base is brought to you by Gen Biotechnology, the marquee peer review journal from the publishers of Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. Launched two years ago, Gen Biotechnology publishes exceptional research, reviews, opinion, and analysis across the biotech spectrum, from genomics and symbio to AI and drug development. The journal features an outstanding editorial team, which is led by chief editor, Hannah Al samad senior VP at Altos Labs in California. Gem Biotechnology has already published exciting original research on gene editing to boost vitamin D tomatoes, CRISPR-based pest control, base editing delivery in a single AAV vector, and cost-effective 3D printing. Plus, Gem Biotechnology has featured exclusive interviews with biotech CEOs, insights from Wall Street financial analysts, and news features from Gen reporters covering the state of aging research, AI and protein design, and advances in organ-on-chips. Gen Biotechnology is the new choice for novel and groundbreaking advances in the biotech field. Learn more at www.genbiotechjournal.com. Welcome
0: back to Touching Base, the new podcast series from Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. I'm Kevin Davis. This week, Nevin Krogan's group uh, at the University of California, San Francisco published a preprint in BioArchive identifying key players in autism by surveying protein-protein interactions. As you heard in part one, Jen's deputy editor, Juliana Lemure, caught up with Nevin to ask him about the background and implications of his team's latest study.
1: So the last time that we spoke, was I want to say twenty twenty one when you had a protein protein interaction network paper out on cancer, if you remember, we at the time used the term cancer's cartographer. and I think we had a discussion as to who was going to trademark that.
6: <laughs> i I, I love that. That was that was your idea, although I think I probably took credit for it since then, but
1: well, so so now we're here to talk about autism and a protein protein interaction map on autism. So let me just start by asking you and I remember at the time when we spoke about cancer and actually before that we should say you had that huge paper the year before on covid. So and at the time that we spoke about cancer you were you did mention that that you were working on autism at the time. So I guess my question is you like to tackle really easy projects.
6: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean what we've been developing here at the Quantitative Biosciences Institute over the last several years are a suite of technologies and they're disease agnostic. And there's been a hard push on trying to integrate these technologies together in a more effective way and then target them on a variety of of different um, disease areas. So one aspect of that is exciting to me. It's the same technology we can study SARS-CoV-2 and cancer and autism with. That's great. But what's even more exciting is when you take a step back and you look at the data across these different disease areas, there's overlap there, right? And it may not be the same genes and proteins, but it's similar complexes or pathways. And science and scientists don't normally uncover those connections because uh, science is very siloed. You know, you have the Cancer Center on one end of the campus, you have, you know, the Neurodegeneration Research Center on the other end. There's not a lot of crosstalk. And what's so great about the technology that we employ, it connects not just genes and proteins, but uh, it connects people. And I think this connection of people is going to lead us to a lot of big discoveries in the future, un- unanticipated discoveries across many disease areas.
1: Yeah, this is like one of the most fascinating fascinating aspects, I think, of what you're doing because, like, so what you're saying, I think, is you're going to, you know, take these autism autism data cancer data, COVID data. And can you find like these hubs that are really central to to just human disease? Is that happening? Yes,
6: yes. yes. And again, it may not be the same, you know, exact same protein, but in the cell, you have modularity. You have groups of proteins working together, uh, clusters, and, and they call them protein complexes. So if you have a complex, one component of that complex, one protein of that complex could be mutated in cancer. Another one could be hijacked by HIV. A third one could be mutated in autism. And if you just looked at the genes, you didn't know anything about the proteins, you'd say, oh, there's no connection here, right? Right. If You look at, you know, biology with the lens this that allows for this kind of quantitative network analysis, which now we have, you right. can see this um, a modularity and you can see this overlap across different uh, disease areas. And really, it makes sense to me, right? You got these Achilles heels of the cell mm-hmm. that become mutated and result in disease X, Y, or Z or viruses or pathogens or have evolved, they're very sneaky with a limited genomic capacity to target the most important proteins in our cell.
4: Hmm.
6: So to me, it makes sense. And, you know, now we have the tools to kind of systematically and quantitatively identify these across many different uh, uh, disease areas. So then if you throw in kind of the AI revolution, uh, this is going to be allowing us now to pick out kind of these key nodes even more effectively.
1: Yeah, I want to dig a little bit into the specific work that has come out this week, And so, and also thinking about both cancer and autism, these are both fields where there's been a lot of genetics done prior to to today. I mean, it's just tons of sequencing and mutations found. How important is that as a starting point for the work that you're doing to have this body of work to build on? Or is it not important?
6: It's absolutely essential, right? We need sets of genes and corresponding mutations to take that we can then you know systematically study but the point is we're strongly arguing now there's diminishing returns with respect to sequencing let's invest funds in the academic world in the biotech and pharma world on the next step the proteins and the proteins are the functional units of the cell let's study what they're doing with proteomic and biochemical and structural uh, approaches and ultimately if you're going to develop drugs they're most probably going to be targeting a protein. So, looking at what you're going to tr- right. uh, uh, drug itself uh, is is very important as well. So, the genetic data, genomic data is absolutely essential to lay the foundation. The foundation has been laid in many cases now. Yeah, we're pushing. Let's go to the next level. Let's go to the proteins, protein networks. Look at the complexes, the pathways. Let's understand the biology now.
1: So, can you tell me a little bit? I I want to know a little specifically, more specifically about how you do this. So, I understand. You know, you take the genetic data that's known. Run it and build your protein-protein interaction map, but then how do you go about validating? And I know um, that you use, you know, CRISPR and maybe even like organoid analysis. How do you go about analyzing that and really, you know, solidifying that these proteins are involved in this process?
6: Right, and that's a key, um, you know, a key step here. And you know, when you you know purify one protein and you get a talking to twenty other ones. And you're like, okay, you know that one protein is connected to disease X. What about these other 20? You know, and here what we've really done is put together a suite of technologies, CRISPR-based genetics, as you refer to, you know, to perturb the the, the genes and saying, hey, does it have an effect on the the, the disease phenotype? Structural biology approaches like cryo EM. You know, can you, you know, look at these protein complexes, you know, in greater detail? And then that that obviously kind of points you in structure-based. Uh, a drug discovery so there's these different technologies you know the the, the cryo-EM um, the mass spectrometry the CRISPR based genetics and then we have we can go to stem cells manipulate genes and then differentiate to the neurons and organoids you know all of this stuff has really been uh, most of it i would argue has been developed here in the bay area and what we've been doing here at qbi is really putting it together you know for the first time and for me this paper it's a fantastic paper on autism but what's as exciting to me is the fact that We're actually in my mind laying the blueprint of how all disease should be studied and it's the first test case of kind of going from a to z or soup to nuts you know sets of genes mutations protein networks you know plus and minus mutations uh crispr based genetics you know combined with you know the mass spectrometry the organoids and um it's it's the whole package right so we've now got all the pieces together uh that we can then focus on other neuropsychiatric disorders like schizophrenia ocd anxiety cancer, neurodegenerative disease, heart disease. So we're in a, a really unique position here um, with all these uh, pieces together. And the other thing I'd add too is what we ultimately want to do obviously is take these insights and develop therapies. And Razor Therapeutics was a company that was spun out of QBI recently, and they're perfectly situated really to, you know, take the insights, generate their own insights, take some of these insights and with a lens of, of developing therapies and, and, I think we're very uniquely situated here with this relationship between Razo Therapeutics and QBI. They're just across the street from one another. And Razo right now is leveraging the insights that we generated in the cancer space, the work that you alluded to earlier, Juliana. And so we're really focused on oncology right now at Razo, although we could expand other disease areas in the future.
1: I want to talk a little bit more about therapeutics development. But before that, I wanted to say that I think, I mean, what we've seen, you know, as a magazine that covers tools and technologies is that the proteomics technologies are so hot right now. I mean, whether it's proteomic sequencing or just, you know, understanding the proteome in a, in a deeper, more, you know, significant, meaningful way. And so everything that you're saying really resonates because it seems like everyone's moving, everyone's going proteome you know, lately.
6: Well, and, and I think that's a great thing, and but there's different kind of resolution of the proteome. I mean, there's proteomic profiling, you know, looking at proteins that are up and down. That's similar to RNA-seq, looking at genes that go up and down. You know, that could be a good way to find a biomarker, but the proteomics we're employing really is trying to get at more mechanistic insight about the function of the protein, i.e. looking at the protein-protein interactions, introducing in the mutation into a protein and saying, hey, what does that do to the other interactions? Does it form a new interaction? Does it lose an interaction? You know, depending on what happens at that network level, that would point you in different therapeutic directions, right? So if you lost an interaction with a disease mutation, potentially you'd want to have a molecular glue, right? To resurrect that interaction, hopefully that would overcome, you know, the disease phenotype. Alternatively, if you had, you know, a a new interaction or a tightening of an interaction, maybe you'd want to have a degrader or inhibitor, right? So this kind of, these tools that we put together, they're not just identifying new biology and new targets, they're actually uh, telling us how to target those targets as well. Okay, so th- that's, I think, very special in terms of how we're using our proteomic analysis, but doing it in a combination with all these other approaches as well.
1: Right, but that part that you were just referring to, and this is where I did want to ask about, like, I understand that a deeper understanding of protein-protein interactions and pathways is going to inevitably lead to new therapeutic development. But what I don't understand is kind of getting inside that process and how, because that's, a lot of that is so unknown. Exactly what you were just talking about, like where you might need a molecular glue, you might need this and that. Like, how do you go about teasing apart what you're learning from what you're doing to how you're going to hit it with a drug?
6: Right. So, I mean, the the a lot of the drug targets that are out there being looked at I mean, there, there's many companies focused on the same gene, okay, and and yeah. you know the, the the drug discovery world, drug development world needs new targets badly, and we're perfectly situated to get to those new targets. And because we can get a deeper look at the biology, like I'm a firm believer of the more understanding you have of something, the better you are. You're going to be able to manipulate that thing, right? And you know, as you say, there's so much we don't know about a lot of the cellular machinery that gets mutated in disease or gets hijacked by different pathogens but you know as we were talking about we're perfectly situated to use this suite of tools to very quickly generate a lot of you know orthogonal quantitative uh, information you know that would then point us in the right direction so like so at a vague level like the more you know about the biology the better off you're going to be without a doubt But then as I was talking about before, some of the more specific type of examples, independent of the kind of the biology, it's like, well, what is the mutation doing to an interaction, Juliana, right? Like if a mutation, you know, is forming a new interaction with another protein that, that doesn't normally interact in, in the healthy situation, well, that's a great target. Just let's target that protein, not, the, not just the interaction, but just the protein you may just have to target compared to if a mutation, if you, if you disrupt an interaction and there's a lot of work in the space of molecular glues right now yeah so why then not come in and say all right let's try to resurrect these two protein pro- these two proteins in this protein protein interaction and and that could have you know potential therapeutic value that's much more powerful than to say oh here's a gene that's up in a disease from you know some biomarker or some RNA-seq or just even some proteomic analysis all right that could be a drug target but you know should we inhibit it should we activate it? You know, you don't know, right? What's what's act- what it's actually doing. So getting that deeper knowledge is 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 crucial to kind of point you down the right therapeutic path. And that's what's so exciting right now is that we have this, you know, pipeline, this in this blueprint put together now. It's being showcased on autism, but it's going to be focused on all other diseases. And I believe, I'm trying to be a modest Canadian when I say this, that this is going to revolutionize molecular biology and in the process also revolutionized drug discovery
1: yeah I know I want to get back to the autism in one second but I was just thinking about well specifically we can use autism as an example well let's actually start with autism first so what did you what was you know the thing that you feel either most surprised you or I mean do you feel like out of this work there were things that are really going to be actionable for autism drug development
6: well, I mean, autism may be one of the more difficult diseases to to target. I mean, for me, this yeah. is, you know, more of a proof of of, of principle okay. you know, of what we can do. But I will tell you, you know, a little bit more detail of this of this work. And, you know, yeah. this started a conversation that I had with the chair of psychiatry here, Matthew State, eight years ago. He's one of the world's experts on autism genetics, and he, he's an incredibly inspiring man because. You know, he had an MD first and he was treating autistic individuals and he realized, well, there's nothing here that I can help them with. I want to go back and learn. So they went went back and did a PhD and became one of the premier geneticists in the autism spectrum disorder um, world. And there's been a number of genes identified, um, you know, several years ago, but it's kind of stopped there. Yeah. Like there hasn't been greater insight, you know, extracted. There hasn't not been, no, there's been no therapy computer advancement that you know that's for sure so it's kind of hit a wall but as we talked about before it it laid a great foundation right uh to go to the next level and look at the protein protein interaction so you know we roped in jeremy Wilsley and tom nowakowski into this these are two excellent scientists here you know at um uh, ucsf there was 102 genes that had been identified through sequencing of autistic individuals about 12,000 of them and they, they identified 102 genes and know the corresponding mutations so what we did was to tag and purify the hundred proteins individually like we've done with cancer like we've done with SARS-CoV-2 to say okay who are these proteins talking to so that led us to a a larger let's say map of about a thousand proteins and one of the things we noted is that there was a high degree of connectivity Mm
4: -hmm.
6: with these hundred or so autism proteins that is to say that you know, the gene level, you just got a list, but at the protein level, they were coalescing or converging on you know specific complexes and pathways to a point we've never seen before. Uh, uh, looking at other disease areas, right? So it's allowing us to interpret now, you know, this genomic data. So we're not looking at 100 genes; we're maybe we're looking at you know 10 pathways. That data now allows you to interpret, you know, the genetic information much more powerfully. Okay, so that was done with the wild-type protein what we used in this paper too, we collaborated with Razo Therapeutics to do some AI alpha fold 2 protein-protein interaction analysis. Mm-hmm. So when you pull out a protein, you get 40 other proteins, you know, to our earlier point, what do you focus on? If you knew who is directly touching mm-hmm. your protein of interest, that'll help narrow things down. And that's exactly what we've done here. Using alpha fold 2 we've narrowed in on interfaces, uh, predicted interfaces that are directly touching. You know, so you go from 50 down to five. That's fantastic if those predictions are correct and it looks like they are correct, right? So to be able to kind of winnow it down to the smaller subset of proteins that are directly touching, that's fantastic. And that's what we did in this paper. Then what we did was put in the mutations, you know, one at a time and said, what did experimentally, what does it do to these interactions? So if there was a, a mutation that had an effect on an interaction, and Alpha Full 2 predicted that those two proteins were directly touching at the region where that mutation was. Boom. These are the best ones to be focused on. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. No, totally. Mm-hmm.
6: So so in this study, we did this and we inherited in on a couple of mutations, which we thought were very important. And one of them was in this uh transcription factor called FOXP1. Mm-hmm. There's mutations in, in FOXP1 that are tightly connected to autism and intellectual disability. And we found that it was disrupting an interaction with another transcription, FOXP4, experimentally. AlphaFold2 said that they were directly binding. Hey, let's look at this. So with Tom Nowakowski, we took that one mutation, used CRISPR to put it into iPSC cells, stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, differentiated to neurons, made mini-brains, okay, and then we could analyze those mini-brains to say, okay, what kind of cell types are are making up these mini-brains in the wild type and in the presence of this one specific mutation? And there was a very striking thing we found, that there was an increase of subplate neurons. And why is that important? Well, this is a phenotype associated with autistic individuals. When there's autopsies done on autistic individuals, this is something you see, an increase of subplate neurons. So to be able to go from, you know, 100 genes with mutations, protein, protein interaction map, alpha-full-2, plus and minus mutations, the proteomics, CRISPR-based genetics into stem cells, differentiate the brain organoids, like that's fantastic. You know, that's like an A to Z type thing. Now your question is, is that a good drug target for autism? Well, that remains to be seen, yeah. but we're positioned position now to do this systematically, Juliana, right? And I guarantee you one of these is going to be looking pretty good. So it's, right. it's an amazing pipeline to kind of prioritize and validate specific mutations and point you in the right therapeutic direction.
1: And now when we talked about COVID, I think you told me about cancer. When we talked about cancer, You told me, you mentioned autism, so I'm going to ask you, what are we going to be talking about next?
6: Well, it's, there's a a large, we're jumping back to a virus, there's a large study on monkeypox, you know, so there's about 200, close to 200 genes there. We started to work on vaccinia, which was the pox virus before monkeypox came around. Monkeypox came, we're like, okay, there's, and then monkeypox went away and we're still continuing to work on pox, you know, uh, virus. These studies take, you know, some time. There's that in you the know, neurology space too, looking at bat viruses, human viruses, and human cells and bat cells, trying to use interaction data to be predictive of what the next zoonotic event is going to be.
1: Yes. Oh my okay. gosh. That is so cool.
6: So, those are the next two things in my book I wrote down this morning, the next two kind of larger proteomic papers that we need to push out. So,
1: oh my gosh. Well, we look forward to them. That's super interesting.
6: Um, out to you, Juliana, for sure when those will come to fruition. Okay.
1: Awesome. All right. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much.
6: Okay. Very good. Thank you.
0: Well, that was a great interview and a great way to cap off episode one of Touching Bass. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon for another episode of Jen's Touching Bass on behalf of the entire Jen team on both sides of the microphone. I'm Kevin Davis. Goodbye for now.